This message is a product of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. We thank you for engaging this conversation. Messages like this one are great resources to help us grow, but they cannot replace being a part of a local church. If you're not actively a part of a church, we encourage you to find one near you that fits you, visit it, and get involved. And we hope this message gives life to you today. Enjoy. Welcome, everybody, as we continue today in a series we started just a few weeks ago called Mindful, really leveraging the Word of God on your behalf to win the war in your mind. Before I get started today, I meant to do this in the first service, but I just want to honor my lovely bride who's on the very front row. Um, Today is 18 years in in marriage, and uh, and she re-upped, y'all, I'm just saying, she re-upped the contract. So at least know we got another year in there somehow. Um, man, I tell you what, uh, there'd be no Vortex Church without Amanda um, and all she's done uh, behind the scenes to serve our family and me. I'm, I'm so richly blessed by her. Uh, next week, as we wrap up this series, uh, please, please don't miss it. Okay, there, there are a lot of us, the testimony that I've heard from so many people is that this series has helped them so much. Uh, it's helped them by helping them understand what's going on in their minds. Next week, I'm going to talk about something that really brings all of this and connects it all. And I believe that without that, it's going to be very difficult to keep winning, even though you might be winning right now. And so I want you to be here next week. And then to get a little bit ahead, actually, uh, the next weekend after that's Memorial Day weekend. And this year I'm going to do something that's, I've I've never done this before. We're going to press pause on our our sermon series. And I'm going to do one standalone message on Memorial Day and give you a vision for the summer. What, What if you got to September and you looked back over those three months, and you said, my, my relationships are stronger, my family is doing better physically in my health, I'm, I'm actually, I've taken giant steps forward, my mind is clear, my relationship with God has never been better. I believe that you could say that this fall. I believe that we could look back over those three months and go, I won something. I fought for it, and I won. But here's the thing. You won't win it if you don't have a vision to win it, if you don't have a plan to attack. And here's my job. My job on that Sunday is to give you a vision for what your life could look like for those three months. Because if we're honest, most of us in the summer just want a break. Just give me a week to do nothing. God, can we send the kids to camp? I mean, geez, get them out the house for a little bit. But what if you could win something in those three months through fighting for it that you never thought you could? It's my vision, and I really can't wait to share that with you. And for those of you who have been tracking with us for the last eight weeks, we will also, on Memorial Day, come back and be one campus again for, for a season, at least for about three months throughout the summer. Uh, we told you we were going to try it out for eight weeks, and it's been really good. Uh, people have been coming to know Jesus at our downtown campus, but we've learned some lessons, 
and there's some stuff that we got to do before that becomes sustainable and, and healthy. And so we're going to press pause on it. And that means that throughout the summer months leading up to, I'm so excited about this, this September we celebrate 10 years. And it's going to be, I, I, I'm so thankful for what God has done in our church. It's been amazing to have watched. There's been just so much over the last 10 years. But instead of celebrating, can I just go ahead and give you this preview? We're not going to use that as a chance to celebrate. We're going to use it as a chance to call ourselves to prayer and fasting again. You, you know that every year we start the year off with 21 days of prayer and fasting. And so as we celebrate, we're actually going to bring that. We're going to do seven days of prayer and fasting. And we're going to really, throughout that seven days, we're going to go after the Lord because we know that the town that we live in, the county, this geographical region, they need the gospel. They need Jesus. We know that we're not the only church, but we know that God has given us this place. And we're going to go after God and say, God, we're, we're, not, we're not satisfied with where we are. We're so excited about what you have done, so thankful for it. But we're going to get on our face and say, God, we need more. We need you to save more people. We need you to rescue more families. And, and we're going to do that for seven days as we go into this following. Now, I think it's going to be a good time for us to all be in the same place. So by manner of review, I want to go back over the last three weeks. If you have not been with us, we've been focused on the Apostle Paul, who, if you're not familiar with him, is, is one of the key figures in the New Testament. Uh, the Apostle Paul is, by volume, wrote about half of the New Testament. Uh, outside of Jesus, probably the most preeminent figure throughout the New Testament. He uh, is a prolific church planner, writer, theologian. Uh, really his thought patterns really shape the emerging church. But his mind was like our mind. There was a battle happening in his mind. And there was stuff happening with him that we could probably never identify with. You know, we, we've got some stuff in our past, but there's not a person in the room who in our past, we actually executed somebody for being a Christian, but that was his past. And so we learn a lot. I believe he leaves us breadcrumbs throughout his writings about how to win the war in our minds. And one of those comes in Romans 12, where he said, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And the thing about transformation is that we understand the concepts of transformation and training when we think about the terms of our body. We, we know some of y'all made New Year's resolutions. We're about five or six months into it, and maybe you gave up at week six or week eight, but we know that if we're going to see a transformation in our body, we've got to train for it. Training leads to transformation. That's so important to understand in our minds. And for transformation, we know this when it comes to our minds, we train for what we do and for what we consume. For physical bodies, it's I got to work out, but it's not just working out. I got to watch what I'm eating. It's the two things. I've got to train for those two things. Same true for our mind. So in the first week, we looked at this verse out of 2 Corinthians, again, the Apostle Paul writing, and he said, for though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. A stronghold is a lie that we've believed. 
and it's become entrenched often by other lies and protected by other lies. They have divine, these weapons we have have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and we take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. How do we train what we do? What do we do in that? We take thoughts captive. We take thoughts captive. So in the first week, I told you, identify one stronghold. Identify one. What's the lie that you've believed? Is that stronghold for you? Is it, I'm not good enough. Next slide. I'm not good enough. I'm never going to be good enough. I'm not the, what is it? Identify one stronghold and then fight back with the truth of God's word. Fight back with the truth of God's word. That's how we train with what we do. So how do we train with what we consume? Okay? There's something to do, and then there's something to watch as we consume. We do that by meditating on God's word. Meditation is not what we think of in Eastern meditation, which is I'm empty in my mind. For the Christian, meditation is I'm filling my mind. I'm filling my mind with God's word. Psalm 119 verse 15 says, I meditate on your precepts. I consider your ways. In other words, I think about what God's told me to do. I process that. I think about his ways. I think about the, the principles by which he's called me to live. I meditate on the, I process those. I stew in those. Psalm 143 says, I meditate on all your works and consider what your hands have done. Will y'all listen to me? There's some stuff in your life you're not supposed to remember. You got some failures in your past, you're not supposed to remember them when you've given them to God and been forgiven of them. Okay? Learn the lesson, move on. Some of you have forgiven other people for stuff that they've done against you. Forget it, move on. But there is something that you are called to remember. And that's what God has done in your life. To remember how the hand of God, the power of God showed up in your life to deliver you and save you. Bring, meditate on it. Think about it. Fill your mind with that. How do we fight the battle, train ourselves with what we're consuming? Fill your mind with the scriptures. Write a confession. Memorize it until you believe it. All right, keep saying that over your life, over your life, over your life, over your life until there's one day you're like, I used to just say it, but now there's something in me. I believe it. So last week, last week we were challenged to address our filters and our frames, our filters and our frames. What are filters? Filters are kind of how I see things differently? Do I see through a filter of fear or faith? What's my frame? My framework is how I understand my life. And I told you that if we can learn to address our filters and our frames, what can happen is that a lot can change without anything changing. We can see the good in somebody. I can see the good in my life. I can be thankful for something. Even when I wasn't aware of it, I've changed the filter. I've changed the framework. So I want to ask a question as we kind of get started today. I've asked this every week. What are you full of? And the reason I keep asking this is we can be filled with a lot of things. We can be filled with pride. We can be filled with anger. We can be full of ourselves. Filled with hate. And I want to, I want to say something that I need to expand on for a moment. But it is really helpful when you come to understand it. What's filling your mind is nobody else's fault. As a matter of fact, 
this is so very important for you to see that it's not just some arbitrary thing happening in my mind where I'm just kind of carried along and carried along or this or that. No, your thoughts matter. As a matter of fact, they matter so much that not, are your, not only are you standing before God one day and having to give an account for your behavior, but you will also one day stand before God and have to give an account for your thoughts. For some of us, the idea that we could sin just by thinking it is so out of bounds as the way that we've understood sin. Jesus is, is very challenging as he opens the Sermon of the Mount, Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, he, he says, you know, you've heard it said that if if your wife's committed adultery, you could you could divorce her. But I say that if you've ever looked lustfully on a woman, you've already committed adultery in your heart. What's Jesus saying? That yes, there's a behavior there, but there's also a thought there that's sin. There's a a, a lustful, and that's not just a man that looks on a woman and lusts after her body. It's a, a woman that looks after a man and lusts for his attention. It's, a, it's somebody who, who lusts for something that's a possession. That, that when it happens in my brain and in my heart, that's sin. That's sin. He goes on to say literally right after that, well, you've heard it said, don't commit Murder, But I tell you that anybody who hates a brother or sister has murdered them in their hearts. What is Jesus doing? He's letting us see that sin doesn't simply happen in our behavior, but it also happens in our minds. That there's a way of thinking in our brains that's remarkably sinful. If you had to stand before God today, would he be pleased with your thought life? If you had to open up your brain, give a printout of all the thoughts that have rolled through your mind for the last 24 hours, would God be happy with your thoughts? Are you being obedient in your thought life? Is what you're allowing and entertaining and processing and thinking about in your brain, is it obedient to God's desires for your life? Are you winning the war in your mind? You might be saying, I have no idea what kind of thoughts God would even want me to have. We're going to go to Philippians 4 today, and we're really going to camp out only in about five verses. And the last verse, which is out of this string of verses where the Apostle Paul's kind of saying goodbye to this church that he's writing. He's, he, he gives us a list of what the, our thoughts should look like. He says in verse 8, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever's true, whatever's noble, whatever's right, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's admirable, if anything is excellent and praiseworthy, think about such things. I, I, don't, I don't know about you, but I look over that list and I go, that's a good list. That ain't what what's happening in my head, right? I'd love for that to be what, if you were getting a printout of my thoughts, that that's what it would be. But I mean, and those are good things. Those are good things. But instead, I don't know, it might just be me. I'm often filled with worry and fear and anxiety and doubt. And so I want to look at these 
five verses in Philippians 4 as the Apostle Paul is beginning his salutation. He's beginning to kind of wrap up this letter. He begins in verse 4 by, look at this. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all, for the Lord is near. What? You see what he's saying here? He doesn't say rejoice in the Lord when things are going well, when things have finally happened that you've been praying about, when everything you thought was supposed to happen, when your candidate got elected, when the people that you thought were going to vote that law in. Don't always, it's not just about what you think should happen. Rejoice in the Lord always. Why always? Why is he saying no? Takes Rejoice in the Lord always if you're taking notes. This is why. There's always something to be thankful for. I don't care where you are in life today, what's happened to you, what you've been through. If you'll address the filters and the frames by which you see the world through, what you'll come to see is that there's some stuff in your life you got to praise God for. You might have had a sick kid all week, but if you take a step back, you might remember a time when you prayed for that kid. Your job might be stressful right now, but if you take a step back, you you might remember a time when you were praying God would give you that job. It doesn't matter where you are. Your circumstances don't have to change for your level of gratitude to change. There's always something to be thankful for. And then immediately he goes to these two verses in Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Right after that, Right before the list of how we should think, he says this. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Be anxious about nothing. Did you notice that? It's a command. Do not be anxious. It's a command. You know what that means? This is important for somebody to hear today. If God ever issues a command, that means it's a choice. God's not going to command you to do something that you don't have a choice in. It's a choice. Do not be anxious. Today we are going to talk about worry and anxiety in the mind. And I want to remind you of something I've said throughout this series. Your life is always moving in the direction of your strongest thoughts. Your strongest thoughts. The the things that reverberate with power inside your mind. Your life is invariably moving that direction. That's good news if you got good thoughts. But that is bad news if your thoughts are negative. It's bad news if your thoughts are anxious and fearful and doubtful. And I want to spend a moment as we get started actually talking about neuroscience and really kind of explaining something that many of us have never understood. And I believe as I do this, that those of us that are in the room, and there are a lot of us that struggle with anxiety and worry and fear, you're actually going to see something that's going to open your mind and open your eyes to how to attack what's going on. In the human brain, there's a small almond-shaped gland called the amygdala. It's, it's prevalent, maybe at times by size, the most 
important piece of the brain, especially in its operations, especially in heightened stress. The amygdala is the part of the brain that's wired for survival. And it's responsible within our brain for what's known as our fight or flight response. Fight or flight. That means that there is inside of us, when we hit a high stress moment, when we hit trauma, when we hit high danger, there's an instinct to be able to understand what's going on. And I decide, do I run away or do I fight? When there's perceived danger, all right, and that's important to understand, perceived, it's based on my perception, what I understand about my world. The amygdala kicks in and it sends the body a strong dose of adrenaline to help facilitate the fight or flight response. For example, you're walking along in the woods, just strolling through, and you look over there, there's a, there's a branch, I thought that was a snake. There's a branch. I thought that was a snake. There's a snake. Some of y'all, y'all gonna run. Just the other way. Just force gumping it the other way, right? Some of y'all are like, oh, it's a snake. I'm gonna stay. I'm gonna play with him. I'm gonna pick him up, throw him around. Some of y'all are like, no, never would I ever do that. That's what happens. That's, it's a moment like that, that, that something triggers as being fearful or anxious or worryful or there's danger, there's anxiety. Something triggers and the, the amygdala immediately kicks in and kind of spurs on the fight or flight response. But here's the problem with it. The amygdala is not objective. It does not have the ability to step back and be objective with what's happening. It is literally hardwired to protect you. And here's what happens. It actually learns throughout your life how to protect you based on what you've been through. This is why we know based on neuroscience that trauma in somebody's life creates what we call a trigger. Okay? Let me explain this grew up in an abusive family. And when you hear the, the tempo and the, the tone of the voices begin to escalate, when you were a child, you knew what was going to happen. Dad was going to get mad and somebody was going to get punched. And so now, as an adult, when you start hearing voices elevate, there's something inside of you that starts happening. The heart rate increases. The rate of breathing increases. You get, you get those kind of, I don't know what to do. I feel like I need to fight somebody. It can be as benign as having been a child in that environment. And as you replay what you saw happen in your brain, there was a floral pattern of wallpaper in the room. And something happens now as an adult when you walk into a room with floral pattern wallpaper, your heart rate increases, your rate of breathing increases. Can I just get personal for a second? When I was 12 years old, I was burned in an, in an accident. It was a, a can of gasoline that was on fire and, and I, I happened to be near it when it exploded. I spent weeks in the hospital having been burned over 25% of my body. I spent months out of school 
as an 11, 12-year-old. And um, to this day, to this day, if I smell gasoline, if it gets on my hands when I'm putting gas in a, in a weed eater or a, a lawnmower, there, there's something that just elevates. There's a tension and an anxiety that elevates inside me. The amygdala needs help. It's not objective. It's not rational. It's illogical. The amygdala needs help. Next slide. And that's why the, we need the, the prefrontal cortex, okay? This is another part of the brain. These are two independent functions happening within your brain. The prefrontal cortex is the part of your brain that's logical, rational. This is where we have logical thoughts. I understand things through this part of my brain. Can I give you an example how this works at night? Y'all ever been laying in bed and you hear a crash outside? Ever happened to any of y'all? Only me, I guess. And all of a sudden you think, there's somebody outside with a rocket launcher and they're about to burst in my house. I'm going to die. Maybe I'm the only person who thinks that, okay? But then what? You get up and you look outside. No, it's just a, a cat. It's the neighbor's cat. It's the logical prefrontal cortex understanding this. No, don't. you don't have to react to that. Without interference from the prefrontal cortex, the amygdala only responds in its pre-programmed response. So I want to take it back to what I talked about just a second. Some of us when we were kids, I would argue that most of us when we were kids went through traumatic moments. Trauma is not always what we think about. Physical abuse. It's not always even what we would classify as abuse. There are kids who grow up in poverty who the trauma that they live in is that their, their home is insecure. They, they never know if they're going to have food or not. For some of us, it was that there was anger and, and a high dose of, of physical violence that came through at times. There's Maybe it was difficult times or there was struggle and, and, and high levels because of that struggle, there was anxiety or stress or fear. I want to take a moment and, and go back to this passage that we're looking at in Philippians 4. The Apostle Paul is writing this letter from a Roman prison. He's not sitting in the comfy office of an executive. He's literally chained to Roman palace guards that rotate in every eight hours. He's awaiting trial before one of the higher-ups in Rome. It's going to potentially lead to his execution. And notice what he says. Do not be anxious about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. If you're taking notes, I want you to see this. Number one, God wants to fill us with peace, even when the natural response is fear. I don't know about you, but if I were sitting in a prison cell awaiting my trial, I wouldn't be telling everybody, y'all don't need to be anxious about anything. I'd be saying, y'all need to join on in with me. Worry about me, okay? 
I'm worried about me. But that's not the Apostle Paul. His advice, straight up, don't be anxious about anything. He's in a moment that all of us would be anxious. That's the reason that this matters so much to hear. Because there are times that the natural response would be fear. But God wants to fill you with peace. You may have grown up in that abusive home. Where when you heard the voices elevate, you knew something was about to happen. Conflict is scary. Because that's how you saw conflict navigated. But faith in God changes that. Now, faith in God intersects that that process that's happening in my mind. And I, I can learn that conflict is healthy. And I can have a supernatural peace even in the middle of elevated conflict. You may have grown up poor. Or you didn't know if you were going to have a meal the next day. And it's natural to think, I'm going to lose what I got. Somebody's going to take it away from me. Something's going to happen. But faith in God changes that. It cuts off that response. All of a sudden, we go, God provided it for me. He put it in my hands. If it ever gets taken out of my hands, God's going to have a reason for having done that. I can trust the God that provides. It's often a natural response that leads to fear and anxiety. This is why it's important to understand the role of the amygdala, right? You've been through that traumatic experience before. Now within your brain, there was something hardwired to protect you. That's the role of the amygdala. And now when that thing starts to happen, it's happened before you've been betrayed. You've been abandoned. You've been neglected. You've been gossiped about. You've experienced trauma in the form of abuse. And it's natural to think it'll happen again. It's natural. But I have good news. You are not simple. Your life is not left up to simple, natural consequences and processes. As a matter of fact, God has gifted you something that changes what is natural. Romans 8 verse 11 says, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of His Spirit who lives in you. You might have had that in your past. There might have been abuse. There might be logical, rational triggers that are there right now, but I I want you to understand that your God is a God who can take what's dead on the inside of you and bring it to life. You don't have to live with that for the rest of your life. You might have been betrayed. You might have been abused. You might have been gossiped about, but you don't have to believe that that's going to happen to you for the rest of your life. Why? Because our God is a resurrecting God, and he can resurrect that broken and dead place on the inside of you. He can bring that fear under submission to your faith. I want you to know this. Number two in your notes, a faith-filled response to challenging circumstances releases supernatural peace when fear seems natural. 
when instead of a fear, we allow the filter of our heart to be faith and we respond to things that are challenging by a faith-filled response, God promises that in that moment, he's gonna release something in our lives that is not natural. It doesn't even make sense. It's beyond my rational comprehension. There's a supernatural peace. Now, I wanna talk a little bit about some neuroscience, and every time I've talked about this, I get a little emotional because we're starting to see things in science that confirm what we as pastors have been teaching for thousands of years. You know, for decades, neurologists believed that the brain never changed after adolescence, that once you kind of came into an adult brain, it was very fixed, it was very firm, you were gonna have that, that was all, if you have that trigger, you're gonna have to learn how to cope and deal with that trigger, it's just gonna be there. But now we've come to see that the brain is continually changing. Your neuropathways are changing you can change your thought processes you can change your thought patterns you can rewire your brain it's literally now called neuroplasticity my brain is constantly changing and melding to my my disciplines my environment and within the context of neuroscience there's a new discipline we're kind of calling it neurotheology it's really spiritual neuroscience, studying the relationship between the brain and belief in God. Dr. Caroline Leaf, if you don't follow her, I would encourage you to. Um, She's a prolific social media poster and brilliant. She's a clinical neuroscientist, um, a researcher, but a profound believer in Jesus Christ. And she's come to the conclusion that prayer literally changes things. This is from her book, Switch on Your Brain. It has been found that 12 minutes of daily focused prayer over an eight-week period can change the brain to such an extent that it can be measured on a brain scan. Some of us are consumed with worry and anxiety know what? We know that toxic thoughts have negative impacts on the brain. They literally, they they can hurt the brain. We can see it in brain scans, but here's what's powerful. Prayer heals the brain and transforms the mind. Literally proven through scan, literally proven clinically that it it can transform the way your mind works. We've all had a friend or a family member who had a medical diagnosis and and things end up getting bad. And one of the most common things that I hear people say culturally, well, all we can do now is pray. I just always want to interject and go, what? All we can do is pray? Y'all listen to me, prayer is powerful. Prayer is powerful. It's not our last step of defense. It's our first step of offense. Prayer changes things. 
things. And so many of us are filled with worries and doubts and anxiety, and we're spending no time in prayer. Hebrews says that we can come boldly before the throne of God. There's never a moment that God has been like, stay away. God's literally, by the price of Jesus Christ, invited you into his presence. Come boldly. You don't have to be afraid. I want to meet with you. I want to talk with you. I want to hear your prayers. In the book of James, the brother of Jesus, James says that we don't have because we don't ask. What if you woke up tomorrow and the only things you had in your life were what you'd prayed for, asked God for, and thanked for? Would your life look different? I'll tell you, not only does prayer move the heart of God. I mean, prayer literally changes the wiring and the chemistry of your brain. So why do we worry? Why? I mean, the most logical and accessible answers that we're experiencing an amygdala hijack. The amygdala is hijacking our processing. It's high, there's a trigger. Something is cutting off my, my rational, my logical thought. It's an instinctual, pre-programmed response. That's what's happening naturally. But you're not just a natural person. There's an element of who you are that is, as a believer and follower of Jesus Christ, is supernatural. You are not just a body. Every person in here is spirit, soul, and body. And I told you earlier that our thoughts aren't just some random firing. They're also a place where we obey God or we don't. And this is one of those where we allow sin to win. What is worry? Can I give you this definition? Worry is the sin of distrusting the promises and power of God. Worry is the sin of distrusting the promises and the power of God. It is literally looking into the face of God, into the heart of God, and saying, God, I do not trust you to take care of my kids. God, I do not trust you to take care of my marriage. I don't trust you to provide. I don't trust you to take care of. It's literally sinning against God by doubting his goodness, his promises, and his power. Romans 8. Verses 5 and 6 says this, those who are dominated by the sinful nature think about sinful things, but those who are controlled by the Holy Spirit think about things that please the Spirit. So letting your sinful nature control your mind leads to death, but letting the Spirit control your mind leads to life and peace. Why, why do we worry? I think if God were going to answer that question, why do we worry? Why do we worry? God, God would say this, that our minds are dominated by sinful patterns of thinking. Our minds are dominated by sinful patterns of thinking. So instead of letting my sinful nature control my mind, I want to choose to let the Holy Spirit direct my thinking. I want to let, I want to let the Spirit of God take over my mind, guide my mind guide my thoughts. And if you have paid attention, number three just kind of sums it all up. Surrendering my mind 
to the Holy Spirit leads to life and peace and power. As he's wrapping this up, what did he say? Rejoice always. You got to learn to reframe. Change the filter. Look through faith. Don't look through fear. There's always something good in your life you can thank God for. Then the next thing, don't be anxious about anything. It's a command. God's saying literally, do not be anxious. And if it's a command, that means it's a choice. I can choose not to be anxious. And then by prayers and petition, bring your request to God. Praying is not our last step of defense. It's our first step of offense. It's how we step into the presence of God. It's how we release the power of God. It changes things around us. Y'all listen to me. If it's big enough to worry about, it's big enough to pray about. If it keeps you up at night, it ought to get you on your knees. If it's big enough to cause some panic in your life, it should cause some urgency in your prayer life. If it's big enough to kind of cause you to kind of get in a tizzy, you ought to be going into the presence of God with it, laying it at his feet and trusting him with it. If it's big enough to worry about, it's big enough to pray about. Why? Because prayer changes things. It changes you. It changes Literally, the chemistry in your brain moves the heart of God. So look at this again. Do not be anxious about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Leave that verse up there. I want you to hear this. You can win the war in your mind. The war of fear and anxiety and worry. The war of doubt. You can win it. You can see the world through a different filter. You can win, but you cannot do it on your own. You'll never have peace if you keep trying to do this on your own, in your own strength, in your own way. Notice how he concludes that in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus, the only way to win the war in your mind is by surrendering your life to him. I think there's some of us that right now in this moment need to get before God and there's some worry that we need to lay down, that we need to repent for. Never thought about it. Didn't know it was sin. God, I need to give that to you. Help me to fight that battle. There's some of us in here that need to, we just need to make it our confession. God, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to trust you. I don't understand what's going on. I don't like what's going on, but I'm going to choose to trust you in it. And I believe there's some freedom for some people right now just in simply understanding where you came from and how you've got to intersect that pre-programmed response that's there that was God-given to protect you at one point, but it's no longer protecting you, it's hurting you. And you've got to allow your faith to intersect that response so that you can have right now, bring it before God, trust it with God, give it over to God in prayer, and then watch prayer change things. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of Vortex Church in Albemarle, North Carolina. For more information on our church, we encourage you to visit us online at vortexchurch.com.